going to ask you, if you would, for just a few moments to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapters 10 and 11. We're going to look specifically at chapter 11 today. But as we close out in the next two weeks, our series in Ecclesiastes, looking at the fact that everything matters in life. You may walk through life and think, and as you read through Ecclesiastes, you would say, everything is a vapor. It's all... Uh, it's all kind of out of order most of the time. We don't know what to expect, and so how can everything have meaning? And the reality is that as we look through Ecclesiastes, what we've come to learn is that the more uncertain life is, the more certain we can be that everything matters. <laughs> the more uncertain life is, the more certain we are to become in certain things. The fact that God is in control and we are not. Right, The fact that we are but creatures and He is the Creator. The fact that we cannot control life. And because we have a judge who is in heaven, one that no matter how we live our lives, we will have to stand before one day, then that means everything that we do in our life matters. Every single thing matters. Your family matters. Your job matters. The most meaningless moments of your life supposedly have meaning. What you do in private matters. What you do in public matters. The way you treat people. The way you don't treat people. It matters. And so we come to chapters 10 and 11 and we look at how then we should live in a world where everything matters. Where God is in control and we are not. And and what we've learned in Ecclesiastes is there's this tension between being wise and being a fool. Between wisdom and and folly between being the one who would understand our place in the world and live within our place in the world and the one who would strive to be something we were never meant to be. Strive to have control we were never meant to have. Strive for certainties we were never meant to actually understand. So I want you to see today, if we're going to say the title of this sermon is Don't Be a Fool. You know, I've always wanted to preach that sermon. You know, every past. First of all, let me just pause for just a second. Is that not the coolest instrument you've ever seen in your life? Bet you thought it was a mandolin when he got up there. It's a bass. That's the coolest thing ever. It's like George size bass. It's awesome. It's like, it's like he either goes mini or mega. It's fantastic. I just loved it. So look. Okay. <laughs> it's a New Year's resolution. It's lost weight already. So it'll be big within two more weeks, right? It'll give up going to the gym. Okay. That's good. Um, yeah, so I, I just think that's the coolest thing. So anyway, um, no, I, I look at the world and, and I want to make sure that we as believers living in this world understand what it is to be a fool so that we can avoid that. Okay, So yeah, every pastor wants to stand up in front of his people and go, stop being fools, right? But I want to make sure we understand what the Bible would define, and specifically Ecclesiastes would define as foolishness. In order for us to do that, we're going to have to understand the definition of wisdom. I think wisdom put in this way is really helpful for us. Uh, Cornelius Plantingus says this, Wisdom in Scripture is, broadly speaking, the knowledge of God's world and the knack of fitting oneself into it. Okay, It's not taking our thoughts and our ideas about the world and coming up with a plan and strategy. That's not wisdom. It's knowing what God says about the world and fitting within his plan. That's what wisdom looks like. So 
The opposite of wisdom would be foolishness. So to be a fool would be to say, I want to be God. I want to be in control. I want to have my plan and all of my plans to work out. I'm going to strive after power and pleasure and possessions so that I can have certain certainties in this life that the world doesn't afford me. If I can have enough stuff, then I'll make sure that I have food on the table. When the Bible would tell us, God's the one who provides the food on your table, so pray, give us this day our daily bread, and he'll provide for your every need. Right? The world's foolishness would say, if I get power, then I'll have prestige, and I won't have to worry. And Solomon would come back and say, you know what, I'm sitting up here on my throne, in my big throne room. I look out across, and I see the guy working his field, and I envy him. Because when he goes to bed at night... He knows that those crops grow not by his toil, but by the grace of God. And everybody looks at me on my throne and says, show us what to do. And you know that this is true, that the more power you have, the more worry you have, the more possessions you have, the more worry you have, the more pleasure you have, the more guilt you have, right? And so he says, pleasure isn't bad, power isn't bad, possessions aren't bad. But the pursuit of those things lead us into foolishness. A fool wants to be God, strives after power, pleasure, and possessions, but is never able to enjoy life as a gift because the uncertainties of life keep leaving him worrisome and alone. Aren't the most powerful people in the world so often the most lonely? And and so throughout the pages of Ecclesiastes, we begin to learn some things about life, that we are not God, we are creatures, that we cannot control life, but life is a gift. So that should change our vantage point for life. We should begin to look at life not from the inside out, but from the outside in. We should look upward, not inward. We should look for wisdom outside of ourselves instead of our own brain. We should not take the world's concepts of what wisdom is when all of them are beginning to look a lot like fools. But we should go to the one who made wisdom. The one who made us and find wisdom there. So under the sun, that's a term that's used throughout Ecclesiastes, we've learned some things about the way the world operates, the way fools operate in the world. And I want you to see this from chapters 9 and 10 before we jump into chapter 11. Okay? Look at verse, nine, verse 15 of chapter 9. Verse 15 of chapter 9, there was found... In this city, so there's a city under siege, and in the city there's found a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Here's what we learn in the world. The powerful are valued more than the simple, aren't they? The powerful tend to be valued more than the simple in this world. We think that people who have power and possessions are the people we should listen to. That's the way the world works. And yet the wisdom says the simple man knew what to do. The poor wise man is the one that should have been listened to. The way the world works is foolishness is often valued more highly than wisdom. Most people in the world put more weight on foolishness than on wisdom. This is shown in chapter 10 Verse 1, look at it. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The the image that he gives there is uh, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. 
you put a few dead flies inside some ointment and some perfume, it's not going to smell very good after a little while, right? A little bit of folly, even in the middle of wisdom, is going to stink up the whole joint. Jesus said a little leaven. What, what happens to the whole lump? Are you with me? This is the reality. A little folly goes a long way. And so because foolishness seems to have so much power, people value it. That's the way the world works. That's why we spend so much time trying to escape reality with escapism. That's why reality TV stars are TV stars. That's why we care when celebrities walk red carpets and what they're wearing. Who cares? Right? That's the way the world operates. And we all go, I don't care. Yeah, but we have our things, don't we? We all have our things where we put a little too much stock in things that really are just passing away. Third, a little bit of foolish talk can kill wisdom. All it takes is one foolish thing said and all the wise things go out the window. You've done this in your marriage, haven't you? You spend six months, men, just saying all the right things and doing all the right things. All it takes is one stupid moment. There's a lot of nervous chuckling going on in here. And a lot of knowing looks. You know what I'm saying, though? You can do a lot. It just takes a little foolishness to trump all of the wisdom that's been going on. The Bible makes this clear. Ecclesiastes 9.18 Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. You can have a vat full of nice smelling stuff, put a dead thing in it, and the whole thing is spoiled. Okay? This is the way the world operates. We need to be able to see this in the world to recognize it for what it is. Fourth, there are plenty of foolish people in powerful positions. Amen? Look at verse 5 of chapter 10. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. Foolish people in powerful positions. It's a reality in the world. We shouldn't be surprised by it. It's the way it works. It's what the, what the world values. The world will prop up and put in powerful positions. The world doesn't value the things of God, so the world is going to prop up the world's foolishness into powerful positions. We need to recognize it, but we also need to not buy into it. Fifth, foolish people act like they have all the answers, but really have none. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 10. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. So the wise man's going right, the fool goes, I think we should go left. Go on to verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. This is basically what this passage is saying. Guys, walking down the road, everybody's going right. He goes left, and he goes, what? And every step he takes just proves more of what a fool he is. But he keeps walking down the foolish road. That's why the road that leads to eternity is narrow. And the road that leads to destruction is broad. You ever want to name a church a bad name? Name it Broadway. Right? Unless you're on Broadway. Okay, I guess that makes sense. But don't ever, 
the broad is the path that leads to destruction. So every time people are walking on the path, they seem like they know where they're going, but they really don't know where they're going. They seem like they have all the answers, but they don't actually have all the answers. They're acting like they know, but they don't know. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Jeopardy. Love Jeopardy. Told my growth group this the other night. Love Jeopardy. Absolutely love Jeopardy. Like to the point that I DVR Jeopardy every night so that if I miss Jeopardy, I can watch it before I go to bed so that I go to bed feeling really good about myself because I'm smarter than some scientist somewhere. Right. There are two groups of people, two types of people on Jeopardy that I really love to watch. Right. There's the guy and this guy was on last week. I mean, you just know the guy. He comes in and everybody else is in the suit and he came in and the open collar shirt with the white T-shirt underneath kind of stands back like this the whole time while he's he's got the buzzer like this. Like he's just got swag to him. Right. If you know what I'm talking about, he's just got a little swagger to him, a little arrogance to him. And he buzzes in on everything and loses because he doesn't actually know the answers. Or I should say he doesn't know the questions, right? Because it's Jeopardy. Okay. But he's buzzing in for everything. He ends up losing because he thinks he's smart. He thinks he knows, but he doesn't. Then there's the other person who's standing over here. And every time she doesn't ring in or he doesn't ring in, and it goes, and Alec goes, the answer is, and she goes, oh, because she knew it, but she didn't buzz in. You know those two types of people? God doesn't want you to be either type of person in this life. He doesn't want you to be so fearful you won't answer the things that are certain. But He also doesn't want you to be so foolish as to think the things that are uncertain are certain. He doesn't want you to have that sort of foolishness or fear in your life. But instead, that's what the world looks like. Finally, the more fools speak, the more foolish they appear. Amen. (laughs) Look at verse 14 of chapter 10. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? (laughs) A fool multiplies words. This is the scariest verse in the Bible for preachers. Because we talk for a living. I just ask you, what does it say? He thinks he knows what he's saying. He thinks he knows the answers. And he keeps talking and he's proving that he doesn't know anything. My greatest fear in life is not anything other than this, to be that guy who thinks he knows the answers and doesn't know the answers, who, wants, who says he's going to be a good father but isn't a good father, who knows what to do and doesn't do it. It's my greatest fear in life. There is uncertainty in life. Foolishness would say, I know what's going to happen. Wisdom would say, only God knows what's going to happen. Faith allows us to trust God in the midst of uncertainty. Instead of acting certain about things we can never be certain about. So, in light of what foolishness looks like from chapters 9 and 10, how should we live? What we know about wisdom, what we know of folly, how should we live? If we're going to live as people who are not God but are creatures, as people who cannot control life, living as if life is a gift, not something we earn or something we're supposed to strive after, but instead something God gives as a good gift to us, and we know that foolishness can kill all of that, foolishness can destroy life, 
how should we live? Well, I think chapter 11 makes it clear how we should live. And I just want to spend the next couple of moments looking at it. So if you would look at chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, verse 1, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What's he saying there? Yes, there is a cycle. But if you're simply sitting there and watching the things happen and not taking action, not taking risk, not actually living life, you're not going to ever reap. If you never sow, you're never going to reap. Okay? You never give, you're never going to receive. As you, as you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, all that comes in is vanity. He's saying this, if you live a long time, rejoice every year that God gives you. But know that some are going to be hard. It's this, you've heard it, this too shall pass. Anyone? This too shall. What he's telling you is this too shall pass. But he's telling you this. There's a little maybe dark cloud around the silver lining here. Okay, He's telling you, if things seem so bad, that you can't survive, this too shall pass. It's a vapor. But if things seem so good that they're too good to be true, this too shall pass. It's a vapor. So be grateful. Be thankful. Be joyful. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. He says, enjoy life, young man. Go out and enjoy life. Look at the world around you. Look at all that God has given you as a gift. Enjoy life. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. He's really good at the dark cloud around the silver lining, isn't he? Well, what's he telling us? This too shall pass. Youth will turn to age or to death. Age will turn to death. And you will stand before a God who will judge you and he will judge you righteously. Remove vexation from your heart. Don't be afraid and don't be surprised. Don't worry. Put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. It's all going to pass. You don't need to worry about it. So, so how do we live as people who aren't fearful when uncertainty comes and people who aren't foolish when uncertainty comes? So everybody here knows life is uncertain. We've all nailed that down, right? Raise your hand if you understand Life is uncertain. Okay. So the way the world lives is either fearful or foolish. We're meant to live with faith. How do we do that? I think he gives us some clues here. And the first is this. Don't let uncertainty drive you to foolish certainties. Don't let the things that are uncertain make you think you can be certain about other stuff. Okay, so you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. All that's uncertain, right? So here's what foolishness would look like. I'm going to grab up all that I can today and try to make as many plans for the future as possible because I can control it. 
You see how uncertainty, we try to make some certainty out of it. Now, God's all about wisdom. You should count the cost before you jump into anything. The Bible teaches us that. Okay, but to think you can control it, James would say some of you are like, you know, we're going to do this, that, this, that. He says, how arrogant are you? If the Lord wills, we will go. If the Lord wills, we will do. So the issue for the Bible is very simple. It's not just make plans, it's trust. That God's plans are perfect. Okay, When we go around and we share the gospel, I've shared this with some of you before, we go around and we share the gospel. Here's one of the first things a lot of us were taught. God loves you and has a plan for your life, right? That's one of the first things a lot of us were taught in the four spiritual laws. What if the good news is not God loves you and has a plan for your life, but God has a plan and he loves you enough for you to be a part of that plan? What if that's the truth? That seems to be what Ecclesiastes is getting at. Don't don't make certain the things that are actually uncertain. Don't grow frustrated by your lack of control because the one who is in control is better at it than you are. For lack of a better way of putting this, for you to be in control does not give you much hope. I know me. You don't want me in control of the universe. I know you. And I definitely don't want you in control of the universe. So why is it that we try to make things so certain so that we can control them? Do you know yourself well enough to know you'd be no good at running the universe? So stop trying to run the universe. Don't make certain the things that are uncertain. So there was a man, his name was Job, and Job did a lot of things right. In fact, God says he is righteous and without blame. In all of the earth, this is the only guy, right? Hey, so Satan comes in counsel to God, and God goes, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, Of course he worships you, God. You only give him good things. He's the richest guy on the earth. He has a great family, great health, right? If you took some of that stuff away, he wouldn't worship you. He would curse you. Okay, take away all this stuff. Family dies. All his crops are gone. All of his livestock is gone. All that he held on to in this world is gone. You give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Doesn't curse God. His wife tells him to curse God. He doesn't curse God. Takes away his health. He doesn't curse God. Right? And in Job 38, there comes this time. Now, here's the way it works. The way the world would look at Job's situation, they would say, Job must have done something wrong. Right? For something like that to happen... What did Job do? <laughs> right? In fact, he has three friends come to visit him who sit with him around the fire and commiserate with him and make things worse. And as so they're sitting there, they take that attitude. They say, Job, look at all that's happening to you. They say, now, obviously, we know how the world works. We are certain that you have done something wrong. Certain about uncertain things. Certain about things they had no knowledge of. Because none of them were in the council meeting when God said, Have you considered my servant Job? They didn't know. But they acted like they knew. God had some stern words for them at the end of Job. But after they commiserate with Job, Job starts going, I don't understand. What they're saying can't be true. But I don't understand because I don't understand how... 
this works, God, that this would happen to me because I do think you're pleased with me. I do think you love me. So what do I do with this? And here's God speaking to Job in Job 38. Now, let me just give you a quick clue. We like to say, I'd love to hear God speak to me. Sometimes you don't want God to speak to you. Job 38 is one of those moments, okay? Job 38 is when God, when God gets sarcastic with you, you've gone too far. That's just, that's just a clue in life, okay? When God gets sarcastic with you, and here in chapter 38 of Job, listen to the Lord God speak to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Hey, fool, who do you think you're talking to? Dress for action like a man. Man up. I'm going to ask you a question. Why don't you give me the answer? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? At this point Job is going, okay, okay, okay. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then. And the number of your days is great. Catch the sarcasm? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? He says, I bring rain where there are no people. What do you control? I ask you, you woke up this morning and the sun came up and you had zero control over it. Clue number one of your day to not live certain of the things you're supposed to be uncertain about. Don't let uncertainty drive you to think you can have control over certain things. Second, don't let uncertainty drive you to close-handedness. Look back at chapter 11. Look back at chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. Just real quick, this is what it says. Cast your bread upon the waters. Verse 2. Give a portion to seven. In the morning, verse 6, sow your seed. There's supposed to be something where we're letting go. Because things are uncertain, we're supposed to be 
letting go. We're supposed to be casting things out knowing that we're going to get back. We're supposed to be given, and the, the term there is get to seven or to eight. Seven being perfection, eight being more than that. Give with such generosity, give with such faith that you know that God can provide for your needs. You know what faith allows us to do in uncertain economic times? Give generously because we have a God who actually owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The entire storehouses of heaven are at his disposal. So we can give even though we have little. The widow's might can be given knowing that we have a God who provides for our every need. See, if we're going to live foolishly in a land of uncertainty, in a time of uncertainty, we would never cast or be generous or give. Instead, we would hoard, we would keep, we would make sure we have enough for today and tomorrow and the next day and ten years from now. When God would say, when did I promise you? Tomorrow, the next day or ten years from now. So Jesus would tell us this. Why do you worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat? Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Look how God provides for them. Does He not value you and love you more than them? Don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. That's something for people who don't believe. That's what the Gentiles do. You know better. So you pray, give us this day our daily bread. You go to the one who owns the storehouses of heaven and you ask. You ask your Father who loves you. And He will give. Don't let uncertainty drive you to close-handedness. Give knowing that you have a generous God you can never outgive. George Mueller said it this way, God judges what we give by what we keep. Not by how much we give, but how much we keep. Martin Luther said, Riches are the pettiest and least worthy gifts which God can give a man. What are they in comparison to life and to bodily gifts, beauty, health, gifts of the mind, understanding, skill, wisdom? But we toil day and night for riches and take no rest. I love this thought. Therefore, God commonly gives riches to foolish people to whom he gives nothing else. Desire more. Desire better. Give. C.S. Lewis said, the only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. A new heart will allow us to give. A new heart of faith will allow us to give. And finally, I close with this. Knowing what we know of foolishness and knowing what we know of wisdom. Knowing that we live in a world that values foolishness over wisdom, we don't want to buy into that philosophy, right? Power is not found in foolishness. We want to be wise people. So don't try to beat the system of uncertainty. Don't try to beat the system. This is God's system. God wants to be God, and He wants you to be His people. He doesn't want you to be God. He doesn't want you to know everything. He wants you to trust. He wants you to have faith. He wants you to believe. 
He knows everything. He doesn't expect you to know everything, and he doesn't want you to know everything. This is God's system, so don't try to beat it. Let me tell you the guy who tried to beat it. Luke chapter 12 tells this story. Jesus told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, let me remind you, if the land of a rich man produced plentifully, it wasn't because the rich man did the work. A, he hired other people to do the work in the field, right? B, that's just not the way growth happens. We read that in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. Sow your seed in the morning and evening with not hold, your, hold with not your hand, for you do not know which is going to prosper or if both of them are going to prosper, right? So the prospering of a land is all God's doing. It's not your doing. It's not this guy's doing, but it produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, I have all this stuff. What shall I do? For I don't have anywhere to store my crops. I have so many crops in storage for a rainy day that I don't have enough room for all of the gifts that God has given me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my old barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This is what the fool does. The fool looks at the gift and thinks that it's what he's supposed to desire. And so he builds his life around the gift instead of enjoying the gift and desiring the gift giver. And so he says, look, I've got enough gifts here. I've got enough stuff here to last me for years. And this is what God says. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? All that you have been striving for is going to be left to someone else. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Be rich towards God. Give generously. Share the gifts that God has given you. Share life with the people around you, not hoarding life for yourself and all the gifts for yourself. When you store up those treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. They are secure. You want to be free from worry in this life? Free from, the way this puts it, vexation in your heart? Give. Cast it out. Don't hold on to it. Give. Live wisely in a world that says, oh, things are so uncertain, but you can be sure about these things. When the Bible says the only thing you can be sure of is there is one who is in control and you are not him. Trust him. So the call today is very simple. Don't be a fool. Trust Him. Trust Him for salvation because you can't save yourself. If you were to come to the end of your life, would you be sure, certain, that when you stand before God, the judge, the one who will judge every bit of your life, could you be certain that He would be pleased with you?
Because if you're banking on any other certainty, then Jesus is the one who paid the price and God is pleased with Jesus in your place. Then you're banking on the wrong certainties. God wants you to be certain about that. He wants you to be certain that Jesus paid the price for your sin and so that God is pleased with you because He is pleased with Jesus' sacrifice. He wants you to be certain of that. He wants you to place your trust. You've got to trust, though. But if you're banking on all these other things, well, I, I did these good things, I've gone to church, I've tried this, and I've been a good person. If you're banking on any of that and chalking those up as certainties... He would call you a fool. Because you're banking on certainties that you're not supposed to be certain about. Today is a day where you can cry out to God and be certain. Believer, you can cry out to God and say, I need to be certain. I'm certain that you love me. Help me to live as if I'm certain that you love me. I don't want to hold on to these things that I call certain when they're really just uncertain. I can be sure of His Word and His promise. Today, if you're hearing this and you say, I know I need Jesus, you can be certain you do. But I want you to be certain today that you have Jesus. So call upon the name of Jesus. There's no magic spell to this. There's no walking an aisle where you sign a paper and all of a sudden you become a Christian. It's very simple. You turn from being in control. From wanting to do it your way. From being certain of things you shouldn't be certain about. To the only one who can make you sure. Place your faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today we would be sure of the things we're supposed to be sure about and trust you for the things we were never meant to know. That we would live in faith, by faith, not by sight. And that we would grow and change and transform into people who would honor you because we live by faith, not by sight. Make us wise to live in a world of foolishness. Not as fools, but as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close by singing today.